I'd like to pray for y'all if I can. Um, can I pray for you? <laughs> uh, Father, like Josh said, just on the drive over here this morning, I was thanking you for your sovereignty and your goodness and just having been in my life as a small group leader and then now working together in the guard, uh, serving the state and serving the kingdom. It's just an honor and I'm grateful uh, to have been as a friend. I'm grateful for this body and this community. I'm grateful for just the ways that you've provided for this community, this building. I thank you for the community that you're building uh, within these small walls. Um, yeah, we're just really humble, humbled to see um, all that you're doing. Father, I pray that, um, yeah, you would just, your spirit would be at work in these next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, one of the most loved and well-known stories in all of Western literature is Victor Hugo's novel about the French Revolution, Les Mis. And I talked to a friend about it recently, and he said, you know, it's a powerful true story, even though it's fiction. And I think that's what all great art should aspire to. Even though it's a fictional story, it tells us something true, namely the power of the gospel to transform and redeem the lives of those whose society says are irredeemable. And so if you're not familiar with the story, you have Jean Valjean, he's this famous prisoner whose life is transformed by this radical act of mercy. And then from that point on, he, he lives his life as this new man. He becomes the mayor of the small town, and he's ever cognizant of treating people with mercy and compassion. And then you have this man named Javert. He's this rigid upholder of the law, this man of justice, and he's always pursuing Valjean for breaking his parole. He's trying to arrest him. And so the typical reading of the story sets up this contrast between law and grace or legalism and gospel. And at the end of the novel, Javert is arrested. He was a spy among these young revolutionaries. And Valjean has this opportunity to kill him. But then Valjean, motivated by grace, spares his life. And then uh, Javert lets him go free. He gives up his pursuit of arresting him. But then that sets Javert on this downward spiral. So the novel depicts Javert as this man who was a victim to despair, which is total loss of hope. So despair clouds his thinking, he's not thinking coherently, uh, and ultimately he commits suicide. And so his entire worldview as this upholder of the law is shaken by this act of mercy. And so he's this tragic figure whose worldview doesn't have room for what one writer says, a view of justice that's haunted by the mercy of God. And so his story ends in a tragedy. Uh, but it is interesting that before he dies, he, he writes a letter to the Parisian police office instructing them to make some changes to their criminal justice system, the way that they were treating their prisoners. And so on, on the whole, the novel is showing that God's grace in the life of Valjean ultimately ripples into the wider uh, criminal justice system. And so it gives us a glimmer of what we would call restorative justice. And the cultural situation in 18th century France is very different from the one in America today. But we're still wrestling with these questions about criminal justice. So, 
You know, are we defined by our sins? Are we defined by our crime? Um, does society view prisoners with the same sort of dignity and compassion? Are prisoners able to be rehabilitated into our society? How is it possible for people to rise above poverty and find a job when they've been marked as a felon or an ex-con? And so what makes Les Mis such a powerful story is that it, it deals with these questions in a way that it stirs our hearts. And as Christians, we too have a story. We have the Bible is this controlling narrative and it's records you know God's activity in human history and so it shapes us it shapes our minds our behavior it shapes our speech shapes the way that we uh, speak so that we're full of grace and truth and so ultimately the Bible shapes the way that we think about the issues of our day and so as Christians we're to be in the world but not of the world so you could say we're to be sanctified not sterilized from culture so we're set apart from we're not against culture and the bible functions like a pair of corrective lenses so it's not disconnected from reality but it helps us see clearly and so when we look at this issue of criminal justice we want to look at it through the lens of the bible and then allow the bible to correct our vision to correct our understanding of justice, to correct our understanding of the dignity of the criminal. And so that's our question this morning is, you know, what does the church have to say about this? More importantly, what does God have to say about this? And then how do we talk about it? This is not just a contemporary issue. Uh, the Bible uh, actually has much to say concerning justice and the oppressed. And so our chief concern is just to look at this question in light of the overall narrative of Scripture. And the main thrust behind all I'm going to say this morning can be summed up with a single verse. It's Genesis 18.25. It says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And that's Abraham. He's, he's praying. He's interceding for this wicked city. And he asks God this rhetorical question. And the answer to that question is yes. Of course, God is the God who will act justly. God is the God who is just. Isaiah 61 says, for I, the Lord, love justice. And so my main goal this morning is to help us choose joy and trust in the God who's just. And so if we're going to un understand God is the God who is just, we have to understand the nature of justice. So how does the Bible understand the concept? How does the Bible use the term? And the Old Testament gives us two words, and they're often paired together, sometimes used interchangeably. And the words are righteousness and justice. So, for example, Genesis 18, 19 says, keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So they're together. And the Hebrew word for righteousness refers to, like, the moral quality of a person. So you're uh, how you relate to others in communities. So it's like your ethical standard. And then the Hebrew word for justice carries two meanings, uh, what we today would call retributive and restorative. So retributive is like dealing with punishment or retribution. And then restorative is about the well-being of a person. So restoring and elevating the quality of life. And so Really, the word justice means you're giving somebody their due. And that can include punishment and vindication of wrong, but it can also include acting with mercy and compassion. 
And it's here where Christians can go off the rails because, you know, for some Christians, there can be baggage with this idea of retributive justice. Uh, They don't like the idea that God would punish. They think that it paints God as this angry old man or that he's condoning violence or somehow it's a stain on his moral purity or something. And so they want to emphasize this purely restorative nature of God's justice. Uh, But in doing that, they create these uh, false dichotomy, these two extreme poles where, you know, either God's justice is purely punitive or God's justice is purely restorative. And the reality is the cross is where God's retributive and restorative justice meet. It's where they come together. Jesus is the lamb who was slain, but he also restores us to relationship with him. God justly condemns sin in the flesh, and at the same time, he declares us righteous through our faith in him, and he restores us to relationship. And then because of his resurrection, he begins the work of renewing all things. So God's justice carries both meanings, punitive and restorative. And it it includes punishment, but it goes a step beyond that to include healing and restoration. And so the truth of the matter is that as Christians, our hope should be that our justice system reflects the nature of the cross. And so that's, that's a cruciform view of justice. So that's a view of justice that's formed by the cross, cruciform. And like I said, that, that includes punishment, but it takes us a step beyond to include restoration of relationships. And of course, wisdom requires balance. That doesn't mean there's no room for retribution or punishment because if we let all punishment go by the wayside, we actually do an injustice to the victim because sometimes punishment says something about the dignity of the person who was offended. But we also shouldn't be too naive or optimistic about human nature or an offender's apology. And so the point is, we have to resist in creating this false dichotomy between retributive and restorative justice. So, I want to look at a case study this morning from the book of Genesis, and it's the Joseph narrative. And you could call it the crime of the century. So, it's a story of love, hate, slavery, and forgiveness. And so, just like Les Mis shapes the way that we think about the dignity of the criminal. Uh, This story shapes the way that we think about crime, injustice, compassion, and forgiveness. And so Joseph, you'll remember, he's the brother, or the youngest of 12 brothers, the favorite son of Jacob. And the brothers, they're jealous of him, and they devise this plan to kill him. And Reuben steps in, he's the oldest brother, and he says, let's not kill him, let's just throw him into the pit which is like a well. And, you know, we don't know Reuben's motivations if it was a sincere act of mercy or if it's him trying to gain favor with his father. So he thinks, you know, if we throw him into this pit, then I can rescue him and then I can be the one to restore him to our father. Um, So the brothers, they, they go through with that plan. And then Judah, one of the other brothers, sees this band of traders passing through and has the idea, well, I know, how we can make a lot of money, and we can sell them into slavery. So that's what the brothers do. And then they deceive their father, and they tell him that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. And so that's injustice number one in the story. 
really that's a whole bunch of injustice, but that's the first turn of events in this narrative. And once Joseph is in Egypt, he's uh, this man named Potiphar buys him and he becomes his servant. And it's here at this point, we see an important phrase in the narrative. It says that the Lord was with him. And then Joseph finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then injustice number two. So Potiphar's wife on multiple occasions tries to persuade Joseph to sleep with her. And in one instance, they get into this fight. Joseph flees, leaves behind his robe, and then he's falsely accused of attempted rape. And it's really important, even his accus- her accusation is tinged with racism. So she emphasizes his otherness. She says to Potiphar, you brought this Hebrew into our house to make a mockery of us, to laugh at us. And so she, she emphasizes his racial otherness. But it's, um, Potiphar hears about this, and in justice number three, uh, he's thrown into prison. And so at this point, we see that phrase again. Genesis 39 says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor inside of the keeper of the prison. So God is with him. God shows him steadfast love, which in Jewish thought communicates that God is acting with righteousness toward him. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying, nor is the Bible saying that the injustice is unimportant because, you know, oh, God is with him. Uh, The fact that God is with Joseph amid such an injustice tells us something about the very character of God, something very unique to Christianity. So it it points to the reality that we have a God who would step into that injustice with us. We have a God who would step into that place of suffering with us. And that even he would take it upon himself on the cross. And so there's no other religion in the world where God would do this kind of thing. This is unique to Christianity. So one of Joseph's cellmates is a cupbearer of the king and he's getting out of prison. And Joseph pleads with him, He says, remember me, plead my case before Pharaoh. And Joseph emphasizes the unjust nature of this whole train of events. So here's what he says in chapter 40, verse 15. He says, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. What happens? He's forgotten. Verse 23 says, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. He's destitute. And you know, prison is one of the last places I'd want to be, especially in ancient prison in BC. And Joseph is there for two years. And we don't know what his thoughts were, but you can imagine it was something similar to the cries of David in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Maybe it was like Abraham's prayer. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He's crying out to God, do something. And even though this injustice is allowed to persist, God is with him. God sees his dignity as somebody who's made in his image. And in God's wisdom, he's using this injustice to bring salvation to all people, to work all things for good. And so if we fast forward to the end of the narrative, Joseph is remembered, he's brought out of prison as somebody who can interpret Pharaoh's dreams. 
And he tells Pharaoh that there is going to be a severe famine in the land. And he says, you know, you need to store up grain for yourselves in the years prior to the famine. And Joseph is raised to second in command. And Joseph's brothers, they hear that grain is for sale. So they come back to Egypt. And now you have this great reversal where now Joseph is the one in power and his brothers are coming, bowing before him, the ones who are vulnerable. And, you know, Joseph is in the position to uh, get revenge on his brothers. That's not what he does. He invites them instead to table fellowship. And the whole family at the end of the narrative is restored and reconciled. And so at the, the very end of the book, this is what Joseph says to his brothers. And it's also kind of a, a summary statement of the entire book of Genesis. So he says, as for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's important to note this is not just a meaningless platitude saying that all things are just going to work out. Uh, Real people were saved from death. Real people were saved from starvation. And in God's mysterious plan, which included Joseph's imprisonment and Joseph's injustice, God is making a way to provide food for people who would have died in this famine. And so Joseph is unjustly imprisoned to be a savior of sorts for all people, Egyptians and Jews. And this, what we have is this incredible foreshadowing of Jesus, the suffering servant who was betrayed, falsely accused, beaten and mocked and crucified for the sake of saving all people, Jews and Gentiles. And so, you know, the Joseph narrative tells us that he was sold into slavery. Philippians 2 tells us Jesus willingly entered into slavery. He took up the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death. The narrative in Joseph tells us that he was going to reign and rule over his brothers and they were going to come and bow before him. And Philippians 2, again, tells us that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow before the lordship of Jesus. And so it's this incredible foreshadowing pointing to what Jesus would fulfill. And one of the main points that we're supposed to see as we read this narrative is that it's God's faithfulness that was at work. God is the one who made Joseph fruitful in his affliction, in the injustice. And so the whole narrative points to the reality that God is the God of justice. He is the God who will act justly. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the long arc of the narrative is yes, even though these injustices were permitted along the way. And so the nature of Christian hope is future-oriented to what we call the eschaton or the end And so we're looking forward to the fullness of God's kingdom when all that's wrong in the world shall be put to right. And so the reality of God's kingdom is that it's already and not yet. So it's here in part, but it's not yet here in fullness. So it's it's been inaugurated, uh, but it's not yet been consummated. And so right now in the present, we live in hope, which is not just wishful thinking. Hope is clear expectation of a reality. And the reality is the fullness of God's peace, his shalom, this reign of 
justice and wholeness. We're, we're confident that that will come in its fullness. So in the meantime, what do we do? What do we do while real people suffer? What do we do while people are in prisons wrongly condemned? What do we do when it appears like there's this disproportionate representation of ethnic minorities in our prison populations? And by no means exhaustive, I have three suggestions for us toward application. And the first is just to acknowledge the good of reform. Our culture loves to critique, but it's much easier to critique and destroy than it is to create and contribute something lasting and good. And so it's appropriate for us to celebrate and give thanksgiving for achievements and steps in the right direction. And to celebrate the good along the way doesn't mean that we're blind to work that still needs to be done. Chuck Colson's Prison Fellowship is the world's largest prison ministry. It's active in all 50 states, 117 countries around the world. And so they, they give spiritual aid. They partner with local churches. They do Bible studies, discipleship curriculum. And they also have programs that are aimed at helping people leaving prison find Christian mentors in their community. And so they're really doing uh, spiritual aid, but also aiming to be truly restorative. And even right here in Wichita, we have Toomey, which is the Urban Ministry Institute, and that works with under-resourced communities. And the prison in Hutch is the first prison to incorporate Toomey's discipleship program within its facility. Congress this past year passed what's called the First Step Act, which is the first major piece of legislation, bipartisan legislation, dealing with this issue. And so it's appropriate for us to acknowledge the good of reform and even in joining in these kind of ministries as God calls us there. And the second is to learn the language of lament. And lament is not the same thing as complaining. You know, in our culture, complaining is really when your heart is disconnected, but you're just venting your fury or your annoyances. And that's not what lament is. Lament is a biblical practice. And you know, maybe it's not practiced much in the church today because it can be kind of awkward if you're not uh, in a season of sorrow. But lament is where we stand in solidarity with people who are suffering. You know, lament is where we lament you know, the 30 innocent lives that were lost this weekend. Lament is when we lament with the person going through their second cycle of chemo. We weep with those who weep. It's about being open with God about our inner pain and our turmoil. And so the language of lament is seen throughout all of the Psalms. And most of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. So Psalm 13, I've already mentioned, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Or Psalm 55, give ear to my prayer, O God. You know, when you're hurt, you're just crying out, God, listen to me. Do you hear me? And so biblical lament is more than just expressing our pain and showing empathy to others, as important as those things are. Biblical lament goes a step further in that it's also an expression of confident trust in God in the midst of suffering. And so ultimately, lament is a form of trust and praise. The reason we lament is because God is on the throne. So because he's on the throne, we expect him to hear, we expect him to do something about it. 
And so it's expressing confidence in his faithfulness and in his goodness. And so the pattern in the Psalms is it begins with a complaint, but then it ends on a note of trust. So Psalm 13 ends, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. Or Psalm 55 ends, but I will trust in you. And so it's here in the language of lament that we really find solidarity with people who are suffering, with people who are experiencing injustice. And that's meaningful to us because that's the very thing that Jesus did for us. So Jesus gives meaning to our suffering because he himself suffered. He himself was subjected to the cross. And he transforms our suffering because he defeated sin and death. And then because of the resurrection, he's beginning the work of renewing all things. And so in Jesus' suffering, he is present and he identifies with us in our suffering. And you know, that's, that's meaningful because when, when we're hurting, we don't want a philosophical answer. We want somebody to know, I'm with you. I hear you. I think that's what Jesus means in Matthew 25 when he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so Jesus preserves the dignity of the sufferer here. The ones experiencing hunger, sickness, malnourishment, imprisonment, he's saying, that was me. I was with them in that suffering just as God was with Joseph. And so because Jesus uses the pronoun I, he's infusing dignity into those situations. He's saying they are image bearers and we're to view them as such. And we join them in solidarity through the language of lament, which again is an expression of trust and confidence in God's goodness. And thirdly, is to choose joy and trust in the God who is just. So the prophet Habakkuk is a prime biblical example of somebody who does this well. So Habakkuk lived at a time when he was lamenting this corruption that had infected Israel. And it's this dialogue between him and God. And Habakkuk raises his complaint, his lament before God. He says, the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, and justice goes forth perverted. And God responds to him, and he says, Look among the nations, Habakkuk, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And so God acknowledges what's going on. He says, I know about this, and I have a plan to deal with it. I'm going to bring the Babylonians to come and judge Israel. But then It's there where Habakkuk begins to question God's methods. And he's saying, how is it just that you're going to bring judgment to Israel through the wicked Babylonians? These people are wicked. And so he calls them traitors. He says, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And God responds by encouraging him to trust that he will act justly. So here's what God says. He says, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. 
but the righteous shall live by his faith. So in other words, be patient, have a forward-looking hope, live by faith that I am a just God and will bring justice on the earth. And then he gives us this wonderful promise in verse 14. He says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So the prophet Amos says something similar. He says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And so the prophets are looking forward to the eschaton, to the end, when the fullness of the kingdom will come. And then the end of the book, Habakkuk ends on this confident prayer, this note of trust. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19, Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, though I have nothing, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So make that your prayer this morning, whether it's you, someone you know, a family member suffering, experiencing hardship, injustice, lament it. That's an opportunity for you to express trust. That's a healthy thing to do. It's healthy to lament. And we can express confidence in God's goodness. So I'm going to pray for us, and then the, the band is going to continue in worship. Jesus, I thank you for um, your son. I thank you for the ways that he stands in solidarity with us. I thank you for uh, just his life on the cross and giving meaning to our suffering. I thank you for your spirit who comforts us in our affliction. Jesus, I pray that we would draw close to you uh, and that we would trust in your goodness. Amen.